When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the 100th episode of Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. My name is Kashif Andrew Graham, and thank you for joining us. It's my esteemed privilege to be your guest host for this episode, where I talk with Roger Greer about moving from allyship to accompliceship and Black joy. Ally saviors have a tendency to create dependency on themselves and their yeah. function as support and make themselves indispensable. Reverend Broderick Greer is a priest on staff at St. John's Cathedral in Denver, where he directs liturgy and oversees ministry with people in their 20s and 30s. Broderick occasionally offers lectures and facilitates conversations related to the interplay of culture, theology, and justice. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Teen Vogue, The Washington Post, and On Being. Let's dive right in. Roderick, thank you so much for joining us on Queerology. This is our 100th episode, so we are very excited to talk about current events and what's going on in our lives. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. So nationally, internationally, it's been a shit show. I think that, you know, things are breaking, but they, in a very necessary way, I think that systems are being pulled apart. And, you know, one story that came out in the Washington Post recently that stood out to me, it's actually about my city. So I wanted to start by talking about that. So in this story for the audience, we have a 29-year-old Black man named Sean Dromgool who posts on the Nextdoor app that he's afraid to walk in his own neighborhood. I don't know how many people have visited, have been on the Nextdoor app. I have experiences too where They start talking about, you know, people post and say there are suspicious black men walking in the neighborhood and they give these very amorphous descriptions of the people. And so he sees that like I have. I would also like to state that his family has lived in the 12 South, this particular neighborhood, for several decades. So one day he posts that he's going to take a walk and he invites anyone who wishes to join him. 75 people show up and walk with him. And it basically becomes this parade around the neighborhood. And Broderick, I'm struggling with this because it just, it feels like very much like white saviorism. But when I think about allyship, which is what I think these folks are attempting to do, I think about allyship in sort of two levels. So I just want to break that down very quickly. Level one for me is where you join that person in their space and say, I'm with you. I think of an instance in which we had a book club at the Nashville Public Library that was talking about the book Dying of Whiteness. And people came from all over. They left wherever their respective neighborhoods and came over. Level two is where you use your privilege to address the powers at work. So for example, when I go, it's much easier for me to go to my coworker 
who's much older than I am and say, some people are talking about getting rid of the older folks first if we have to have layoffs at work. And I just wanted you to know that I don't agree with that. I think the harder thing, what I call the level two, would be to address ageism in that respective group chat where my peers are saying those things. So I'm saying all of that to say I struggle with this hashtag walk with Sean because I think that white folks really need to address the white fear of Black bodies and address the racism that's present on those forums, such as Nextdoor. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I was chewing on that for several days and I just, it just wouldn't, I couldn't digest it. Exactly. And, and nor should you be able to. You know, a few years ago, this had to be about five or six years ago, I came across this lovely short essay called Accomplices Not Allies, Abolishing the Ally Industrial Complex. And it's by um, an indigenous person who basically talks about how so much of allyship or an ally framework is based around the perpetuation of allyship. So it's, it's never really concerned with abolishing the thing that causes a person to have to be an ally so that the person can remain a perpetual ally. <laughs> it's kind of the difference between charity and justice. You know, charity mm-hmm. is the handout that's not concerned with the structure. It's concerned with kind of the immediate solution rather than getting to the root of something. And Dr. King you know, has this lovely illustration, I think, in his last sermon in Memphis, where he talks about when you see, and I'm paraphrasing horribly, when you see someone having the same issues on the Jericho Road every day, you know, they're getting beaten up every single day, and you make yourself the Good Samaritan, it's probably time to consider contacting the Jericho Transit Authority instead of just giving, you know, being the Good Samaritan. And I think what this person talks about in this essay is that accomplices are are really concerned with putting themselves out of business. They want to get to the root of the problem. Accomplices in, in this instance would, as you said, they would go to the root of the problem. They would call in their white neighbors and say, this is racist. You're a white supremacist. And your aggression and lack of imagination um, are violent and are making a Black neighbor feel very unsafe. But instead, you know, they're kind of living in what you call that level one framework, which is the immediate fix, the immediate solution. And, And I'm sure there's a place for that, but it doesn't address the urgency. For instance, is that sustainable? Is what they're doing with him sustainable? Are they going to go walk with him every time he leaves his house? Yeah, because otherwise they become like white chaperones. Exactly. I think that's one of those questions that makes a difference between an allyship framework and an accomplice framework is sustainability. What is sustainable for the person that you're seeking to help And on top of that, and and this is one of my perennial frustrations, is who says that someone is an ally? Am I an ally just because I say I'm an ally and because that makes me feel good and someone sees me do it or someone sees me wear a safety pin? Or am I doing the quiet behind the scenes work 
that is making something more accessible, something more humane and something, you know, something more beautiful for someone I love. Yeah, I, I, I think and, and even that the quiet work, the work that doesn't seek, that doesn't have, you know, sort of the fanfare and Gloria or the pomp and circumstance that may look like signing or voting in a particular way. I'm not necessarily talking about national or local politics, but um, boards and things like this. I think that's such an important thing to note, the quiet work. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would love to think that I'm an ally of trans people, mm-hmm. but I've never been given that moniker by anyone before. And fill in the blank of the communities that I hope that I'm an ally or accomplice to. But if they're not saying that about me, then at best I'm, I'm aspiring to be an ally or an accomplice. I'm, I'm giving myself over to that process. It's a process. Yes. Because you become a student, you know, you have to humble yourself and if you will sit at their feet and make mistakes and use let them correct you as you use the wrong or inappropriate language. I think it's, it's all of those things. Absolutely. It's a process. Yeah. Author says that ally saviors have a tendency to create dependency on themselves and their yeah. function as support and make themselves indispensable. You know, so it becomes this kind of codependent thing. I mean, it makes you think about sort of the the foreign mission trips, service yeah. trips, you know, just kind of the, the one and done type model of charity that is often more concerned with, as a lot of critical theorists will say, they're more concerned with equality than they are with equity. Yeah, I think there are several things that you're saying that that's stand out to me. I mean, one of them is what happens, what would happen if Sean said, in the way that uh, in the last essay in Tressie McMillan Cottom's book, Thick, where she says, I refuse every one of them when, when she called herself ugly. If he sort of said it in that same spirit, I refuse every one of you. I don't, I don't necessarily need any of you to walk with me. I need you to go and address the systems. And if they got angry at that, who would they be? Because I'm just trying to think of how much of their identity is tied up in being the helper. And if that's taken away from you and you're not, you're no longer needed to help someone and you lose a great portion of your sense of self, what does that say about you and how you've sort of built or constructed your identity? Yeah. It's, it's, and, and that's yeah. the concerning part. I mean, it, it, it also too, and I think this is always underlying so many of these discussions is when black people or a minority of any kind is saying something like that. What are they wanting from that situation? Do they know they're going to find some sympathetic liberals and get some attention for a few minutes from them? You know, because sometimes people, unfortunately, that's what they want. They just want that attention. They want that rush of having the gaze, G-A-Z-E, of the powerful person. Or do they want an equitable situation to emerge from their complaint. I really get concerned for minorities of any kind because it's really precarious ground to walk on because I think, you know, Tressie's model is the best one. You know, I'm basically self-referential and you can either catch up with that 
and contribute to my flourishing, or, you know, you can continue to be complicit and participate in a wide, you know, in systemic oppression. And I want to go back to what you said about who gets to say whether they're an ally. I think it's also, you know, I've I've been following your social media as we follow each other. I think it's hilarious the way in which you, you know, you, you reposted something that was basically like saying, some of you think that you're allies or that you're checking on your black friend and that black friend does not consider really consider you a a friend they consider you an acquaintance i mean it's funny because in this time and again i think that's contributed to my general sense of exhaustion i've been overwhelmed with text messages and you know emails of people checking on me um and some of them i just i really don't know what to do with and i've chosen to not respond to a good deal of them and it's also interesting because, I mean, even on Facebook, there was somebody that added me and she must have realized that, that at this point, when she was searching for me to send me a message that we were no longer friends on Facebook. And I thought, oh God, here we go. I didn't, I just decided to ignore it. But I think that that's for me, a form of self-care is to say, y'all are all rushing at me and I just have to refuse a good number of you and say, what you need to do with what's going on is sit with it, let it marinate, let it boil over and journey inward or whatever and make a decision about how you're going to do things differently. But to reach out to me seeking absolution or whatever you're seeking is just, is too much. And I wonder if you've been experiencing the same thing. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced. And it's amazing to talk to other Black people from similar backgrounds or who are in, who are working among similar demographics, that they're experiencing the same thing. Someone, some comedian, black comedian, I can't even remember who it was, the other day said, why do these white people have your numbers in the first place? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fair question. And then they, you know, some of the people that work there, you know, who he was talking to, they were like, well, you know, a lot of them are people we work with, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I have a very racially mixed group of friends just by virtue of where I went to college and where I went to grad school and the neighborhood I grew up in. I mean, it's it's a combination of things, but it's like, and I've, I've, I've tried to find this article, but I can't seem to find it. I've just remember, and maybe it's an article I should have written from a couple of years ago that was about, well, there is definitely an article in the Washington Post from 2014 about how white people claim to have a lot more Black friends than they actually have. Yes, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. It was a transformative piece of reading for me a long time ago, and I revisited about once a year. But I saw something sort of related to that a while ago that was all about, and I think it was a little tongue-in-cheek, but there was some some truth to it, that if you're a white person and someone is nice to you, a Black person is nice to you at work, you are very, you're inclined to consider that Black person a friend. Even though you've never been to their home, they've never been to your home, you don't know anything about them and you only see them at work. And the Black person is actually way less likely to consider you a friend. And they're like, you know, that's someone I work with. That's a coworker. We're not mm-hmm. friends. And, and it's not. And the thing is, it doesn't mean that the black person 
doesn't like you or they're just not your friend. I mean, that's not, it's, that's just not how it works. And I, you know, saw this off and on on Twitter. There can often, when you're a hyper visible person, and I think this can apply, I've never thought about this before, but I think it can apply to black people or any sort of minority in a professional setting or social setting. When you're hyper visible for whatever reason, there can often be this illusion of intimacy by people who don't actually know you. And they're like, oh no, that's the black person from the office. Yeah, he's whatever, or she's whatever, or they're whatever. And they feel like they have this intimate relationship with you, even though they don't. I wonder if people feel that way. I wonder if a lot of white folks feel that way about Oprah, for example. I mean, I'm not being shady, but I'm just thinking that for some of the folks that claim to have, they say that they have progressive politics and they seem to think that they have a lot of Black friends. But when you look at it, it's all celebrities that they follow on social media or that they somehow think that they're engaging with. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on in like this sort of psyche here and why that is. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine... I think it's a very complex question. But I think also one thing, I am just wanted to say this, one thing that has troubled me is seeing some of those people who, again, say that they have progressive politics and they're, I don't know, I would hope to maybe consider them accomplices. But then I look at all of their social media, which is, which granted is only a fraction, a snapshot or several snapshots of your life. And there are no Black people. And they have these very carefully, it seems, curated feeds. And there, there are no Black people anywhere, no people of color. And I, I just don't understand that, you know? And I think for some people, I think this is sort of hitting the fan now that they're supposed to do the right thing and check in on their Black friends. And people are like, you know, away from me, I know you not. Or like, what, you know, this is a very strange text message. You know what I'm saying? Yes, it's, um, I mean, it's complicated. It's really complicated, I think, because this is one of those, as theologians would say, it's it's one of those apocalyptic moments. And apocalyptic does not literally mean, you know, the end of time, as it does in the popular imagination. Biblically, an apocalypse is an unveiling. And this is such, this is an unveiling. Nothing new is happening. It's just that for so many people, the curtain or the veil has been ripped away and they're able to perceive things as they actually are and not as they want them to be or as they thought Mm -hmm. they were, or they can no longer be subject to what I saw someone call toxic positivity. And that's, I think I did find that article and it's from the African-American Intellectual History Society, and it is called A Brief History of the Black Friend, and it's from 2018, and it's all about, and I am now remembering, it's all about basically post-bellum, post-Civil War, Black-white relations. And white people were confounded because they, they were labor camp owners Some people call them plantations. They were labor camps. They owned Black people. And among themselves, they thought, but we heard them sing and we saw them. They were always smiling when they were around us. 
Um, They were, they didn't try to escape. You know, why would they want to leave now? Like, why? I mean, it, it was this existential question that white Americans were asking after emancipation. That's not where this started, but it, it was, it, it again was another apocalyptic moment where white people's perception had been that black people were happy where they were. They were oh, happy yeah. in the peculiar institution of enslavement. And we know the truth is that black people were not, they were miserable and dehumanized. And yet black people often played a role to trick white people into thinking, you know, they were somewhat content where they were to keep the white people from killing them or separating them from their families. And so it's, I think a lot of white people are having that same existential question right now, which must feel, I mean, I cannot relate to them in any way, but it must feel, you know, I had grown tired of a lot of my interactions with white people they really came to a head for me about two months ago. I walk about mm. six miles a day and I was on a walk in my mask, like I always wear. And this happened day after day, day after day. I'm walking and then there's a white couple, white straight couple with their baby and their dog. And they take up the whole sidewalk, you know, and they're not wearing masks. And the expectation is that I'm supposed to move for them. And I mean, this has happened in my whole life. It's so funny. And so one day, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to move. Well, a long time ago, a few years ago, I decided I wasn't going to open doors for white people at stores. And I'm not going to move for them on sidewalks because I basically Mm -hmm. moved for white people on sidewalks my whole life. So I made that decision about five or six years ago. I wasn't going to do any of that anymore. But with Mm -hmm. the, you know, I kind of loosened that. With the pandemic, because I was like, I don't want to be close to anyone that's not wearing a mask, et cetera, et cetera, even if I'm walking. And then I was like, you know what? I'm tired of this. So, you know, one day this white family or a bunch of families, they were having some sort of socially distanced party on their lawn. And they're, you know, this white woman is making these sarcastic comments to me because she obviously can tell from my body language, I'm not very happy about them blocking the sidewalk because I'm trying to take a walk on public property. And I think I said something like, you really do think that you own this sidewalk. And she didn't say anything else. But, you know, that's how I was raised. You know, we were, where I grew up, we were taught, I was taught by my parents, we don't take things from white people. We don't allow them to just treat us any way that they want to treat us. If we have to, we will either, we, we will verbally fight them. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'm happy I have those skills because it, it's truly just this, this very, they truly believe that this is their world. Well, you know what? I I have to jump in there because I, I so commiserate or I don't make, let's not even talk about misery, but I, I'll just say, I get that. You know, for me, I grew up in New York in Westchester, relatively diverse county just above New York City. And I went to school with with children of all different colors. And I never really cowered from saying anything to any white person. It was never, I never thought, I didn't think twice about it. You just said what you needed to say. You tried to be respectful and you moved on. It's interesting, Broderick, because when I moved to Tennessee, I moved to Cleveland first. So I lived in East Tennessee for about two, uh, three years, actually. 
where I went to seminary and something happened. There was some sort of like social reprogramming that I didn't realize was going on where it became exhausting for me to say anything or I suddenly felt my like I was fearing that I was going to have what Andre Perry describes as a Negro moment. He uses the other word that I I, I don't want to use here. In which, you know, I think about if folks remember the, the movie, uh, the Disney Cinderella, when Cinderella is about to go to the ball and Cruella and, is it Cruella? Drizella and uh, whatever the other sister's name is, they strip her gown. I think Monet's we call her what? Ivanka. If- <laughs> Ivanka, yes, Iv- Ivanka and, and uh, Drizella. Uh, you know, they strip her, they strip Cinderella's gown. And for me, sometimes I've struggled with anxiety in public encounters. This is why when Christian Cooper did what he, what he did, it was, to me, it was heroic because I, I don't know when it happened. It seemed it was by imperceptible degrees that I, you know, tried to avoid those encounters. Um, so much so that I remember recently being at a performance there uh, at a, a sizable performance, performing arts studio here in Nashville. And of course, they offer up the rules at the very beginning and say no recording, no flash photography or no photography, so on and so forth. Right. Well, the person there was a white man that was sitting to my right. And of course, he has his phone out and it's like holding it out like way out and is recording the performance. So the person, there was a white woman that was sitting to my left and she said to me, is that bothering you? Like, do you, do you want to say something? And I said to her, I'm not going to say anything. And I think in that moment, it was both a combination of, there may have been a tinge of fear, but it was more so like all the work that goes into that. Because you know that the per, I mean, I, I imagine that there would be maybe a, a backlash or the person would make a scene and sort of say, how dare you speak to me in that way? But it's it's something that I've come away from those encounters, Broderick, sort of like I've had to unpack them and go easy on myself because I'm like, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you say anything? You know, and I think that that's a way that as you talk about, I, I do think sometimes that that white Americans have acted like they own the world. Yeah, it's a. Uh definitely a symptom of colonialism and colonization and a a settler mindset. You know, they have a right to this land. They have a right to our time, to our lives, you know, things that we know that are not true, but that they truly believe. And when they act on it, there generally isn't a negative consequence for them. And if you're not careful as a, if I'm not careful as a black queer man in Nashville, I can very easily internalize that, their expectations. And I've had to do a lot of therapy and unpacking to let that go because I thought this, is, this was not the way that I was raised. Where did I pick this up? And was this perhaps a survival mechanism? I can imagine living in rural East Tennessee. But for sure, I think that I think that that is the result of world's seeming world domination. And it's very hard, I think, for folks to hear no, but they have to hear it. They have to hear no. They have to hear that you don't own the whole sidewalk. And that's been one of my bugaboos since this pandemic has started. I, too, walk several miles a day. And that was one thing that I noticed is that people would slacken the dog 
leash or the lead on the dog instead of pulling it taut. Like you need to pull Fido into you because I don't I don't want Fido all over my clothes. You know what I'm saying? It feels like the disrespect. It's like you have one side of the sidewalk. You should walk single file, as we say in Jamaica, small up yourself and allow other people to pass. But there just seems to be some sort of a disconnect that that has been a struggle for me, which is hard because walking is one of the things I do to, to take care of myself during this time that I try to walk. And that's me sort of getting away. But I feel like even there, I meet white supremacy. So I guess I wanted to also ask you, what are some of the other things that you're doing to either doing, abstaining from, moving towards to take care of yourself during this time? About a year ago, I deleted Twitter, but a long time Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which, you know, which says a lot. I mean, I don't think anyone really noticed that I was gone, which is fine. Oh, Lord. (laughs) One of the things things that, that is so crazy about that experience is that a couple of years before, maybe, well, two or three or four years before, someone had given me this wonderful nugget of wisdom that in the Twitter settings, you can turn off automatic play of videos. And it was around the time that Eric Garner was killed by New York police. And it was kind of on a nonstop loop. And I think that that's when I, that's, that's when someone shared that with me. And, you know, there were all of these very thoughtful essays by Black people that went out around that time that said, you don't have to watch Black death. The death of a Black person in a very public setting, in mass media or social media, only really does one thing. It reinforces how we operate in the white imagination anyway. You know, in in the white imagination, we're dead, just in general. And so it just reinforces their feelings about that. You know, oh, yeah, this is what Black people do. They die. And then for Black people, it just re-traumatizes us. No one benefits from us keeping the death and lynching and dehumanization of Black people on a constant loop on mass media or social media. So a lot of that is gone from my life. I've not watched the video of um, George Floyd being killed. I have Same no, here. No I didn't watch it. I mean, and I'm not going to. And what a monster one must be to say oh my goodness, I watched that video and now I understand what Black people go through. And I'm like, oh, you're just telling, you You just admitted to me that you're a fucking monster. So yeah. thank you. So I now know to run in the other direction. Yeah, because that means that the per- that means your heart is so calloused that it took it took that thing to, to pierce your heart. I mean, that's terrible. That is, uh, mm And you know, the thing that, that I keep in my heart so much is what the narrator of John's gospel says towards the end. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And I, I just think about that all the time. Why do you have to see the video to believe us? That's been a long process over kind of the last six years. But other things are, you know, I, I talk to my parents very regularly. I talk to them on a daily basis. I talk mm-hmm. to a cousin that I'm very close to multiple times a day. So that's really good. I belong to a, a black and brown book club here in Denver. And while mm-hmm. we've not been able to meet in person, we have a, 
a text thread that we're on and we, we chat all the time. I'm a big, big, big fan of gospel music. Often, you know, when I'm walking, that's all I'm listening to is gospel music. My grandmother was a gospel musician. It's the language of my heart. And, you know, if there's not a B3 organ in heaven, I don't want to go. Seriously. I want to say, too, that it's so funny because that is that has come back up for me, gospel music and like listening to listening to the whole score or track from uh, Say Amen, somebody, the Barrett sisters, the storm is passing over, the storm is passing over, hallelujah. And he brought us. I mean, there's so many of those things that have become like my anthem and I play them over and over. I, I totally, that definitely resonates with me. Yeah, you know, the the Clark Sisters movie came out, well, actually in, in April, it was on Holy Saturday. And yes. it was, you know, it's it's, I've watched it like three times during uh, the pandemic. It's it's just such a gift yeah. that it came out because it was supposed to come out in January originally. Right. And Jackie's husband died and uh, Jackie Clark Chisholm. Yeah. So it was delayed till April. And, you know, that has just been such a balm for yeah. me. And then, you know, just revisiting a lot of old essays that I really like. I'm I'm right now sort of my scholarly interest is in I grew up in a Black Baptist church in Texas, mm-hmm. and my family is Afro-Baptist, like fifth generation. I was kind of the first departure from that. But I've been reading this wonderful late 80s scholarly work by Walter Pitts, who was a um, basically an anthropologist, sociologist, and a church musician, and wrote a lot about Afro-Baptist ritual and... Mm how it's deeply rooted not only in antiquated white Protestant ritual, but is decisively rooted in African sort of spiritualist ritual as well. And so, you know, sort of anything that is a a reminder of my Blackness, a reminder of my queerness, is just a gift. It's a joy. You know, I'm not exhausted by being black. Say that again. So important. So important. Say it again. Because that's what some people, the people who are rushing towards me, that is the attitude that they're coming with is that they're sort of like, I'm sorry, you're black. And I'm like, honey, that's not the problem. You know, the problem is that they're white. Yeah, hello. Hello. And honestly, <laughs> and it's not even ontological. It's not that they are just white by nature because it's not. That's not natural. It's something that they believe about themselves. Right. It's the idea of whiteness. Yeah. Absolutely. And so they're they're invested in that. And and by virtue of their investment, that causes violence for us. And so yeah, I'm I'm not exhausted by being black. I'm exhilarated by it. And I've I've been doing a lot of memory work in isolation because I live by myself and I really haven't seen anyone in three months. But so I'm left with a lot of memories from growing up. 85% of which are very, very positive. And, you know, just thinking about the barbershop that I used to go to, that was also the barbershop my grandfather and father went to, and the black and white TV in that barbershop. And church growing up, you know, I was thinking the other day about this woman who, well, you know, growing up Baptist, we would have called it, she caught the Holy Ghost. And she was dancing oh, yes. and her wig fell off in the middle of church. And my brother and I oh, lost Lord. it. I mean, we were done. <laughs> we were just, we just couldn't even believe that her 
wig fell off yeah. in the middle of church. And just thinking about funny stuff and like holidays with family and how, you know, everyone would just be screaming, laughing. We, you know, play games after dinner, you know, just the joy of my childhood and the joy of my teenage years and the joy of domestic life in my neighborhood. And you know what, Roderick, I'm going to jump in because I think that that's such a powerful thing to do because I think that some of the people that are rushing towards us have seen Black death and have made the assumption that that is all our lives are and could be. And you are leaning in and letting your life take on sweetness in the remembering in a way that that pushes back against that to say there is much more than just Black death. And it's like, if, if, if that's all that you are paying attention to, then you need to have a serious come to Jesus, come to whomever, come to somebody, come to yourself moment, you know? But that's so beautiful, journeying back through the memories. I love that. Yeah, Nikki Giovanni, she did an interview with Krista Tippett from On Being about four years ago. And I think about what she said so often. It's just a little clip from that. She was talking about how she doesn't want, she does not want white people to be her biographers when she dies. And this is just a little quote from from one of her, um, from her poem, Nikki Rosa. And it's about that. She said, childhood remembrances are always a drag. If you're black, you always remember things like living in Woodlawn with no inside toilet. And if you, if you become famous or something, they never talk about how happy you were to have your mother all to yourself and how good the water felt when you got your bath from one of those big tubs that folk in Chicago barbecue in. And somehow when you talk about home, it never gets across how much you understand their feel, understood their feelings as the whole family attended meetings about Holly Dell. And even though you remember, your biographers never understand your father's pain as he sells his stock. And another dream goes. And though you're poor, it isn't poverty that concerns you. And though, though they fought a lot, it isn't your father's drinking that makes any difference. But only that everybody is together and you and your sister have happy birthdays and very good Christmases. And I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me because they'll, they never understand black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy. Wow. And I think about that a lot. Like I just really don't want white people to know anything about my life because they'll, they'll never understand the complexity because they don't have the imagination. And, you know, like, again, back to that, in their imagination, I'm dead. And so it's just amazing to think about my own complexity and my my family's complexity. Yeah, it's amazing. I am definitely going to journey back through what I'll probably do tonight. You know, I mean, once we finish talking, I'll probably go and look through my photo album. I think that's a healing experience to sort of see your life stitched together or whatever the continuity looks like for you, whether it seems, it feels seamless, or I think that's such a powerful thing. Well, someone once told me that if you're having a hard time loving someone, imagine them at age five. And I think that applies to oneself as well. Like if you have a, if you're having a hard time loving yourself or having a hard time in general, imagine yourself at, at age five. And when I think of myself at age five, I do, I was happy. I was happy because we had just moved to the suburbs 
And um, my parents were very happy and we had a big new house and a huge yard that wrapped around the house and we barbecued and it seemed that, you know, we were moving up in the world. But it, it was, my concern was less about, I mean, I don't think I, I you know, was thinking about moving up in the world at, <laughs> at age five, but I was certainly happy that my family, that we were all together and that we could spend a lot of time together. I think that's such a powerful thing for Black folks to do right now. And I would encourage all of our listeners, especially our listeners of color, especially our Black folks, to do that, to journey back through and think about the happiness. Because I, th- I think that's just so healing. In a time when very well-intentioned people who wish to become accomplices have sort of signed on or awakened to our lives and all they're seeing, as we said before, is death and destruction and sorrow. And I think they're coming with feelings of empathy, you know, and saying sort of, I'm so sorry. This is, this is what, I again, sums up a lot of the text messages that I've received in the past couple of weeks. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And my thing is, you're sorry for what? If you are angry or sorry about white supremacy, then turn to white supremacy and give it a good whack at the foundations. Don't, you know what I'm saying? That, that's where you need to channel that energy. But I think not towards me and not towards you, because I don't think our lives are anything to be sorry about. No. And, and then, you know, and also I think there has to be a commitment. You know, the people we were talking about earlier, the white people post-emancipation who were like, you know, those were our friends. The black people were our friends, you know, as if they didn't have a legal obligation to like smile in front of white people. And it's like, you know, you think about those, those big dinner parties that were held on those labor camps by white people for white people with black people as the cooks and, and the attendants. And you think about all the stuff that the black people discussed in the kitchen. And, and I think that image for me is so powerful of what, what do we discuss in the kitchen that is not for white consumption, that is truly not for them on any level that they can never be privy to. And I think a lot of black people who are hungry for white attention are quick to share, overshare about their <clears throat> lives and about their feelings and about their experiences. And they're sharing with people who will never understand them. And, and why waste your time doing that? And will often not reciprocate because for, for many, I mean, I've experienced that where I'm talking to someone and they have sort of this waspy, you know, reticence. And you just, you're, you're, you're pouring out your heart and you can't get any information back. They don't give you anything. They just say, I'm sorry. <laughs> and they don't understand even the tension that, as you, as you mentioned before, holding in tension, the beauty and the pain that you don't wish you didn't have that because it's just, it makes you who you are. And you know that, you know, whatever you experienced as a child, you knew that parents were complicated people, but you loved them anyway. And you were glad to have them. And it's so true that you talk about, it's like the sacred circle of the kitchen. Like this stays here. Because it's, it's if you can't appreciate the nuances and go with me to the unlevel surfaces in the story, I'm not really sure it's for you. And that's fine. That, that is okay. Yeah. And I wonder, again, whether trans folks, whether other folks have the same experience and that's something I, I hope to investigate as I enlist 
to become an accomplice um, for other people. Well, you know, Alice Walker talks about that in her definition of womanist. She says a womanist is a separatist, and I'm I'm butchering this paraphrase, but it's a separatist for health. At what points in my life do I have to be a separatist and huddle with my people for my own health? That does not mean that I'm not engaged with those outside of that community. I have to, you know, whatever, work and and fill in the blank. But what, where are those places that are carved out where I'm able to separate and not be under the eye of the majority and, and do it for my own health? I was at the Racial Justice Institute last year at Vanderbilt, and it was so healing. I think I spent the first two days like fighting back tears because I was finally with Black folks with mostly Black folks. And that I hadn't had that experience. I mean, it had been years since I had been in any space with mostly Black folks. And it was it's just something about that just was so healing as we were talking about our experiences, you know, as we were talking about race. And we didn't even talk about, it wasn't necessarily about race. It was just about our lives or, you know, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't, it was healing. I guess that's the crux of what I wish to say. And I know that sometimes other folks have great difficulty when we talk about QPOC spaces where it's QPOC only. I've had friends that don't understand that. Like, why do you, why do you need to have, like, what does this do? This is sort of, or they'll say it's segregation, you know, it's very necessary and very healing. The last thing that I wanted to ask you, and I'll answer this question myself, attempt to answer it in a few words. What does it mean as we are about to journey through Pride Month, what does it mean to be a queer Black man for you? I think it means standing on the shoulders of giants. So many, I mean, it's almost, you know, the more we learn about the past, the more it's like, who among sort of Black luminaries were not queer? It's like basically just like Martin Luther King. Everybody else was queer. It's like Lorraine Hansberry, you know, Lorraine Hansberry, Bayard Rustin, James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, Alice Walker, who's still with us, Angela Davis, who's still with us. I mean, it's just what an inheritance. Langston Hughes. I mean, the the list goes on and it's like, my goodness, what a, you know, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And that is beautiful. And it's amazing. And so that, I think for me, going into this Pride Month 2020, that's what I hold. And I, you know, and I hold also all of the, you know, the trans black women who are mercilessly killed on a regular basis, you know, and what is my responsibility to them and for them, you know, and, and how do I have imagination that isn't just LGB because it, it was and is black trans women who really, I mean, they were the ones who threw the first stones at Stonewall and ignited a fire that that just won't go out. So I sit with all of that, you know, kind of the joy and the tension. And I think that I would echo that sentiment. I mean, I'm I'm trying to, I guess I've been trying to extricate, I think is the word there, meaning from experience and to say, as a queer Black man, I've experienced sexual racism. I've experienced being marginalized, of marginalization, I've experienced other things. But I think when I think about meaning, 
you know, and, th- and that, that has, of course, not been anywhere near the sum total of my experience. That word creatives keeps coming back to me. The people who, although they, for many of them, they didn't have it in front of them, but their mind, they were able to envision a world in which they were able to envision Giovanni's room and they were able to envision, you know, so many other things. So I think about being a queer Black man, I think about being someone with a quality of spiritual vision. That's what comes home to me. It's like you have to be both and. You have to be surviving in this world and also critical of it because it doesn't hasn't accepted you fully. I think it's, you know, when we talk about double consciousness, I just think of being here and also sometimes, yeah, having two, almost two experiences at the same time. I guess the, just the sense of richness and the spiritual vision that you're seeing when I talk about the two experiences at the same, at the same time. It's like you, you're experiencing life now, but you have a sense of the future and you have the vision for the future. And it's both of those things. And that's what it means to be a queer Black man for me. Well, Broderick, thank you so much for joining us for our 100th episode. This has been an absolutely delightful, thought-provoking conversation. Be safe. And we will talk to one another soon. Thank you again for having me. This was a joy. I hope that this conversation has been most informative and that it has made you uncomfortable in ways that are healthy. I encourage you to further your knowledge of race in America by visiting your local library. Please note that many libraries are now offering curbside pickup and have a whole host of electronic and audiobooks available for your perusal. If you'd like to read my protest poetry, you may follow me on Instagram at KAGWrites. Keep fighting the good fight, arm yourselves with accurate information and love. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.